Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. You might have noticed the UK is going to the polls on December 12th. General elections are only supposed to happen once every five years. This is the third since 2015, the first to be held in December since the 1920s. For UK voters, Christmas is definitely not coming early this year. In fact, for the many schools that have to close on election day to be used as polling stations, Christmas may not happen at all. Up and down the land, carol concerts and nativity plays have had to be rescheduled or cancelled for this snap election to go ahead. Some parents are very upset. Others? Less so. Anyway, if that's all you want to know about the UK election, you should probably turn off now. Come back next week when we'll be talking about the future of India, among other things. But if you do want to know what's at stake in this UK election and what the lessons might be for Brexit Britain or Donald Trump's America, for that matter, this episode is for you. At the end of the show, I'll ask our UK economist, Dan Hanson, how he thinks the economy will be affected by the election and by Brexit. But first, we have a special debate I chaired earlier this week with the heads of three extremely well-respected independent think tanks here in the UK. It's been their job the last few weeks to tell fact from fiction in this highly polarised, rather febrile election campaign. We talked in the debate about what the two main parties were proposing in their election platforms or manifestos, what the key dividing lines were, and whether and how much any of it could really be believed. Lots of politics and policies and smart debate. No politicians. You're going to love it. The Institute for Fiscal Studies, led by Paul Johnson, the Institute for Government, led by Bronwyn Maddox, and the UK in a changing Europe, led by Anna Menon, uh, have played a massive role already in the truth-telling battle. You're going to get lots of truth-telling this evening. Uh, also, uh, questions from the audience here, but also, importantly, from, uh, the, from online. I have them all here. There's lots of questions that we already have. Most of them are worth about half an hour's discussion at least, uh, so I apologise in advance for people um, if their questions aren't fully answered, like, is there an answer to the social care crisis? Um, but uh, the really exciting news is that this is being broadcast online and will also be on the Stephanomics podcast, which is available whenever you, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Paul, I think we will have to deal with economics first. If you step back... You know, can we, can we put, look at, sort of briefly look at where we are in terms of what the parties are suggesting, but I think more importantly, put it into some context? Yeah. Um, well, we've certainly got big differences between, uh, between the parties. I think it's worth um, starting, actually, thinking about the, what's in the manifestos just by saying uh, that everything about the economics and public finances of the next five years is incredibly uncertain. Whoever wins uh, and whatever happens with Brexit, there's lots of uncertainty around what impact that's going to have on the economy and the public finances. Don't forget, as we often do, there's a big wide world out there, which, um, economically speaking, was doing pretty well until a couple of years, until <coughs> earlier this year, and we lost out on a lot of that growth. Uh, but it's slowing down. Um, we've got trade wars uh, between China and the US. We get a recession about once every 10 years, and it's about 10 years since the last recession. Uh, so whether we get another one over the next parliament uh, remains to be seen. And if we do, of course, uh, quite a lot of stuff might get blown well off course. 
What, what are the Conservatives saying? Well, uh, in their manifesto, remarkably little, I think it's fair to say, on public finances, spending and tax. I think we said, and I think we'd certainly stand by that, that if this had been a one-year budget, we'd have described it as pretty modest. As a, uh, as, as a programme for government, it's really, for five years, there's really remarkably little in it. I mean, so spending in a couple of years' time will be about £30 billion more than it is today. So in that sense austerity um, at an end, uh, uh, no further cuts planned, um, and public service spending a little bit higher by 2023 than it was in 2010. Not that that's an awful lot to write home about after more than a decade. Uh, though public service spending outside of health will still be way down on where it was in 2010, 15% lower uh, by 2023 on those plans than it was in 2010. Uh, so some real increases, but in a sense, those were all pre-announced, and there's very little additional um, in the manifesto. Uh, you take all of that at face value, and you get the deficit, the debt, um, pretty steady uh, at roughly where they are, which is pretty much what you might think of most of the Conservative manifesto bar Brexit, which is steady as she goes, um, not much change. Of course, uh, risks around what would happen as a result of no deal, um, if that's where we end up in a year's time. Uh, Labour couldn't be much more different. Um, uh, the scale of the tax and spending plans, uh, it, it's hard to overstate. They really are extremely big. Um, so just to throw some big numbers at you, um, current spending uh, increases 80 billion a year. This is on top of the 30 odd billion already uh, coming through. Uh, investment spending an, an extra five, 55 billion a year on average over a parliament, that's doubling government investment spending. Tax increases of 80 billion a year. Um, uh, by all uh, British historical standards, uh, astonishing and unprecedented levels of tax and spending increases. It's important to put that in international context, though. Uh, if you take the overall spending plans, they would take us from a relatively low by Western European standards to rather more average by Western European standards as uh, tax and spending as a fraction of national income. So uh, unprecedented in UK history, but not unprecedented uh, in terms of international comparison. Um, on, the, on those spending uh, plans, um, where's all that money going? I think the answer, in a sense, is it's largely going to a reimagined and more universal welfare State. So free higher education, free childcare, free personal care, free prescriptions, um, and free quite a lot of free TV licenses, free quite a lot of other things. This is actually not a manifesto focused on the poor. There's very little in there, actually, to undo the welfare cuts we've had over the last uh, 10 years, probably less than a quarter of the welfare cuts um, to be reversed. And, of course, the main beneficiaries of the... Uh, things that I just uh, mentioned are those who currently uh, are high-earning graduates, are, uh, are, are, are older people who actually have uh, some assets uh, and so on. But actually, I think, you know, despite those big differences uh, between Labour and Conservatives on their tax and spending plans, I think there's one thing in common, which is actually we don't really know what they would do, uh, because it's not, I think, plausible that within a single parliament... Labour could do all of the things that I've just described and uh, nationalise water, power, broadband, uh, Royal Mail and bring in their inclusive uh, share 
uh, ownership scheme and, as I say, double, uh, double investment spending and all of the other things uh, that they're describing. So there's a list, an aspiration, uh, which might be achievable um, over a couple of decades, but certainly isn't achievable over a couple of years. So I think actually with both Labour and Conservatives, one's left with a lot of uncertainty about what actually uh, they would do um, in, uh, in, their time, uh, in their time in government. Where would, uh, where would Labour's plans leave us in terms of um, the public finances? Well, um, on, their own, on, on their own figures, um, borrowing would uh, something like double um, uh, to about 4% of national income. The debt would, national debt would be rising, and that's all assuming uh, that the economy continue to grow as currently uh, currently projected, but I think the big—I mean—the big story here is a huge increase in the role, scope, and scale of the state. Not just in terms of its tax and spending, but in terms of nationalisation, which would take more than five percent of private business assets into the uh, into the public sector. A minimum wage, actually, uh, which would directly set from Whitehall the wages of a quarter of private sector workers. So high as it set uh, relative to the sorts of wages that people earn. So a dramatically different view of the role of the state compared with, uh, compared with, the, uh, compared with the Conservatives uh, and a big change from where we've um, ever been. Bronwyn Maddox, your, uh, the Institute has done some fantastic stuff almost daily on uh, the public services piece um, of election debates. I mean, it does strike me that although we talk about, we've talked about the sort of big macro numbers, actually what's striking about this election is not the, not the, the macro debates that we've tended to focus on in the past, but actually real disagreements about the microeconomic level about the, the basic principles for policy. Absolutely. Let me say two general things um, about this election and then dig into some of the detail and pick up on these points that Stephanie and Paul are raising. And the first is that this is a real battle of ideas. We've had something of a consensus for 30, 40 years about how to run government, no matter whether Labour or Conservatives um, have been leading that government. And, and it's about driving for more efficient use of public spending, uh, bringing in some of the techniques from the private sector, like targets and a certain sort of managerialism. But you've, you've had a broad consensus there. And, that, and the government was there to work with uh, the private sector uh, and the boundary might go back and, and forth a bit, but the techniques for doing all that would, 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 would get better uh, and better. And this is, um, and certainly the challenge from Labour in this election is something very different. Uh, they don't see it that way, and they have gone to great length, great length, in their manifesto to spell out just how differently they, they, they see things. And while we can talk about the individual policies, I think we have to capture as well that this is really a different worldview about how government works, as well as the size of the state. And the second thing, picking up on, on a, poor, a point that Paul made, is that they have promised too much. Um, the Conservatives have promised too much with Brexit. Uh, their big idea, if you like, their, their manifesto is not entirely devoid of things, because that sits there right in the middle. Um, and yet what they've promised in terms of um, getting that done, and the timescale on which they've promised to do it, and the fact that their objective depends on the European Union, not just on the European Union, but on the uh, unanimous approval by 27 different European countries, makes that extraordinarily hard. That's them. 
Labour has, to its credit, uh, spent obviously a great deal of time and many, many pages in spelling out in detail what it intends to do. Um, the sheer bureaucratic volume of what they tr try to do, I think we, we need to remind ourselves of. It um, takes them y years, possibly, simply to create the three new departments they want. Things that are in there almost as, as an aside, like abolish universal credit, to be enormously <coughs> disruptive and take a couple of, uh, couple of governments to do, and I'm not sure they'd be well advised to do it. And that's before getting on to some of the big planks of what they want to do, like renationalization and so on. So, you know, they've got enough in there for many, many governments. And this question of prioritization, I think, would be particularly forceful direct directed at them. On ownership, which matters a great deal to Labour, um, we can see from this manifesto, Labour has really set out, it believes that it matters uh, who owns things. It matters that if the government uh, owns things, it matters if workers own things. And it is clearly after a transfer of power um, uh, through this uh, ownership. I think it has yet to make the case that government ownership of many of the problematic things it has alighted on, for example, the railways, would be dramatically, would lead to a dramatic improvement. Um, the, these, these are problematic for uh, many reasons, um, but they were under government ownership before. Um, it is absolutely true that in some cases, um, privatization has not helped, but the fault, I think, um, has, it lies more easily, it's more easy to identify the faults with a regulatory regime, and that would be an easier starting point than simply pulling the whole lot into government hands again. And there is not, in many cases, capacity to manage these things in the way that there was in the past in government, uh, and to say that all these problems will suddenly go away. They won't. They will be more easily pinned at the door of ministers. Uh, to, uh, Alan's going to talk uh, much more about Brexit, but I would just say I mean, the Conservative deadline of the end of the year is so tight, uh, the EU preparing uh, so uh, thoroughly already for those negotiations, and you only have to scatter in a few words like fish and Gibraltar to make the whole thing very <laughs> complicated and difficult for any UK government, UK government to accept that there is a real possibility, if we have a Conservative government here, that uh, we have another no-deal cliffhanger, though the room for compromise that both sides showed might lead us to hope that that could be brushed away. Uh, on the Labour side, um, this timetable of six months to get it all done, including a second referendum, I honestly think is, 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 is for the birds. It, it just, um, uh, they would have to be bringing in legislation right away for a second referendum without even knowing what the question was because they wouldn't have done the deal yet. So I think they've been unrealistic, both of them, in different ways on this. And I just come back to that point of the battle of ideas. I mean, this, the, these are two very, very different uh, expressions of how government works and the role that government plays in fixing things and by extension the uh, role of freedom for individuals or businesses. Uh, it is a battle about liberalism in, in a way and we can express some of this in numbers, um, the sheer amounts of money going to one thing or other, but it's bigger than that. Um, and so even though this has been called the Brexit election and the public services and wall of money election, I think it really is a battle of ideas. It's, and Bronwyn, I want to, I'm going to come back very briefly on that because I do think it's interesting. It hasn't come out of nowhere, this very different approach. 
Um, and of course, many people would say it's directly a throwback to, to a previous time and previous uh, Labour Party policies. But, but you know, how much do you think it's a reflection uh, on the, the failures of that sort of managerial approach that was in ascendance for all these years? that throughout this period, not just recently, throughout this period, quite significant majorities of the public have been in favour of, of renationalising quite large chunks of the privatised industries. Um, and certainly younger people also have a perception that things have, that, that managerial model certainly didn't change enough in response to the financial crisis. I was struck, there was a very good uh, business week piece about trying to explain to the Business Week audience and the Bloomberg audience this week how Corbyn had sort of got so far, and particularly about um, you know, how radical he was, but also how particularly younger people uh, supported him. And it says, they not only have zero problem with his desire for an activist state, they see it as the sole remedy for a system that's still forcing average people to pay for the sins of the financial industry and the crash. I mean, there is a bit of, you know, some of this is, is because there was a failure to change. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's, it's, it's older than the financial crisis yes. itself. Um, and I think some of the privatizations, you know, worked partly. Um, you can argue it's not very popular that the railways were even worse before uh, and carried many fewer people. Um, and, and that BT has, um, in, in a lumbering way, you know, improved itself. Uh, and so on. Uh, and I think that is right. But the regulators also, to my mind, have struggled with a very difficult job, not just of price regulation, but um, uh, sometimes of, of, of content regulation in the case of, of Ofcom. They've got, they've got very, very difficult jobs, and there is not a great deal of support, rightly, in my view, for kind of unelected technocrats uh, presiding over these things that really affect people's household bills and so on. So I think a lot of the challenge is right. And when you come to the generational imbalances, um, we can have this, there'll be a whole seminar just on this, which I'm sure Stephanie would be very expert on, <laughs> but what the responses to the financial crisis did in terms of the, uh, exacerbating the problems in the housing market and exacerbating uh, stocks of wealth um, for some, some parts of the population. Um, easily caricatured, but, but there is enormous sting in that for um, the generational divide. And I think politicians have been very, very slow to recognize that and to address some of the particular problems, for example, the housing, uh, the, the housing market. Um, and so these things have built up. But state, uh, whether state ownership is actually a remedy for all of these, I think is an entirely separate argument, and one that I think Labour has, has really uh, yet to make the case for, let alone to win. Uh, Anand Menon, um, Bronwyn said this was supposed to be the Brexit election. It is striking that it has not been as dominated by Brexit as we might have expected. And I guess some people would take that as an example, as a sign of these other real debates being quite important to people. I guess the other, the other reason might be that people just don't, are fed up with talking about Brexit and don't know who to believe because, as Bronwyn says, there is so much unreality uh, on both sides on this topic. What do you think? Well, and, and yet at the same time, people have very strong feelings about Brexit that mean that, you know, if you look at the survey evidence, far more people in the British Social Attitudes uh, poll, the survey that's taken, are now very interested in politics than was ever the case before. Uh, we can expect, I think, pretty high turnout, not just because people are motivated, but because we have a new register, so we're counting fewer dead people now, so the proportion is going to be higher, <laughs> naturally. Uh, uh, so... 
so I think people are motivated uh, by Brexit. I mean, the problem is, I think, there are, there are the prospectors, as, as, as Bronwyn hinted at this, uh, that they're being offered uh, aren't altogether straightforward or necessarily honest. Uh, on the points about, and I'll come on to the manifestos in a minute, but on the points about whether or not this is a Brexit election, I suppose the proof of the pudding is going to be in the eating. Now, 2017 was meant to be a Brexit election, but if you dig into the numbers, then actually social class, as ever, was the primary driver of how people voted. So there was a Brexit impact, but it was quite limited. And what we don't know this time, and I'll come back to this in a minute because it matters, is whether or not new Brexit coalitions will take shape, whether in particular the Tories come to power on the back of a Brexit coalition, that might win the majority, but might actually make it very, very hard for them to govern. Uh, because creating a set of economic policies for that Brexit coalition is going to be challenging, to say the least. But on the manifestos, if I start with Labour, I mean, the Labour offer is, on the surface, quite simple. We're going to go to Brussels, we're going to renegotiate the deal, we're going to come back, we're going to have a referendum, and as Bronwyn says, that'll take us six months, and then we'll move on to other things. Now. There are holes in this, I mean, not least in the fact that it's far from clear what Jeremy Corbyn is going to ask for in Brussels. There are some wonderfully ambiguous phrases in the manifesto. Joint UK-EU trade deals is one such phrase. Uh, if by joint the Labour Party mean the EU will negotiate them and we will have to apply them, then I think the EU could probably live with that. If by joint the Labour Party means we're going to get a real say over them, I suspect Brussels might turn around and say, actually, no. So that's one issue where there's going to be a little bit of ambiguity. And the other is on the notion of alignment with the single market. What Labour don't say is how much. So the scale of ambition is very, very unclear. Uh, and of course, when it comes to the political practicalities of the Labour position, there's very little escaping from the fact that even were Jeremy Corbyn to pull this trick off to go to Brussels, renegotiate a deal, uh, and there are reasons, I think, to wonder whether he'll get that far, which I'll come back to in a sec, but he will come back and then find a significant amount of his own cabinet, of his own parliamentary party, of his own party membership, and of his own electorate, will then go and campaign against what he's just done, which at a minimum is not a good look. Uh, I mean, you know, think back to 2016. It's not a good look for a prime minister to have his deal trashed by his own party. So there's, there's instability inherent in that, uh, anyway, so, you know, there, 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 there are issues around what, what, what Labour is offering. I, I personally think it'll be very, very hard for a minority Labour government, because that is the only sort of Labour government we're going to have, to get the necessary legislation through Parliament. Uh, my hunch is, as they try to do this and run into the choppy waters of a, Lib, of a Lib Dem party, half of whose MPs will be people who left in order that Jeremy Corbyn didn't become Prime Minister, of an SNP that has its own list of uh, demands, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we weren't to have another election before we got anywhere near a referendum, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to save that to last, actually. Uh, we turn to the Tories. I mean, there are three things that, that concern me about the Tory manifesto. I suppose. Well, one thing that doesn't concern me is I think I would say that if the Conservatives come back with a majority of one they will get Brexit done by the end of January because I'm pretty certain that no Conservative MP returned in this election will vote against any Brexit motion in the House of Commons until we've left. So I think they only need a very, very small majority to get us over that line. Then, going back to one of the things I said earlier, if you imagine a Tory party in Parliament that involves not just traditional Tory MPs, but, you know, 
a Tory MP for, I can hardly say this out loud, a Tory MP for Wakefield, for Bolsover, for West Bromwich, for Warsaw, all those people, once they've been elected and got over the sort of warm glow, will be thinking, hang on a sec, the Prime Minister's plan for Brexit is to make our economic relationship with the European Union so thin that a significant number of my constituents might lose their jobs before I'm up for re-election. Uh, those pressures will be real inside the Parliamentary Conservative Party, I think, quite quickly. So in a, in a sense, the more successful Boris Johnson's electoral strategy is, the harder it will be to deliver the sort of Brexit he's been promising. Just putting you on the spot, because there's a, a question uh, from uh, online that does just that. What is harder to do? Negotiate the future relationship within a year or negotiate a new withdrawal agreement and hold a referendum within six months. If you're just kind of, you know, on the implausibometer, you know, which, which, which one is kind of off the scale and which one is, or are they, are they both? Well, they're not, neither's easy. Uh, <laughs> I, I, the trade, I mean, remember, it's not just the trade deal. It depends on the scale of our ambitions. I mean, one striking omission from the Tory manifesto is any mention at all of security cooperation with the European Union and let... Issues around military cooperation, around data sharing for police collaboration are incredibly important. If you want to do all of that and you want to do it well, you're not going to do it in a year. So negotiating a good, broad, thorough relationship with our nearest and largest trading partner is not going to take a year. It's going to take longer. So that's, that's the most implausible, but the other one's pretty... Uh... It's hard to, a, hard to swallow race. as well. Um, I've been looking through, I have been paying attention, um, but I'm also looking through all the many, many questions, some of which came in before, um, uh, before we started talking. Others are trying to prove that they are watching by noticing that Paul Johnson's wearing red socks. Um, <laughs> uh, Is that a question? But, <laughs> Paul Johnson but, always wears red socks. Well, there you go. Actually, they, they make that comment as well. Um, <laughs> it's your mum. It's, there's quite a few about what the impact's going to be of all these policies going to be on productivity, because that is something that many of us have talked about, indeed, wanted politicians to focus on over the last few years. And it struck me that there's a kind of broader thing about growth. You know, you see, I see a lot of the investment banks and independent economists analysis of different economic scenarios after, after the election. And it's quite striking that they all they can't really get around the fact that growth is, they ex would expect the economy to be larger and growth to be faster under the Labour Party because they are inputting the fiscal policies, the stimulus of the next few years. They're also looking at, at the very least, their assumption is either that you might not have Brexit after a second referendum or that you would have um, at least a softer form of Brexit. And of course, you can see that that kind of goes against the grain because they also know that there are all these policies that they might imagine would be bad for growth. But traditionally, we've, been, we've found it quite hard to sort of model in short-term forecasts those kind of dynamic effects. So how do you think about the, growth imp the relative growth impact of uh, the manifestos if some proportion of these policies are implemented? Yeah, that's a very, I mean, in a sense, that's the most important, or one of the most Should important be. questions, yeah. uh, but it's an incredibly hard one um, to answer. And there are big risks and uh, with, with, with both of the main parties. So if you look at, um, if you look at the sort of, um, sort of take the Conservatives as the sort of baseline, as it were, and assume that they, 
you know, achieve something like the kind of Brexit that they're, they're looking for, then most of the forecasts are for pretty miserable growth over the next five years, 1.5% a year, um, something like that, which is, um, which is well down on what we would normally have expected over the last 50 or 60 years. Uh, and you know, that's associated with a combination of the costs around Brexit and just a continuation of very poor productivity growth that we've seen for the last, uh, for the last decade. A couple of people have asked, they say, are our institutions of state, civil service, judiciary, etc., strong enough to withstand the assault from politicians? And what can people do to help? I mean, another version of this, in a sense, is, which is more specific to Whitehall, is, is the concept of an impartial civil service likely to survive this election and the post-truth era? I'd say several things. I mean, firstly, actually, levels of public trust are quite reassuring. Uh, I remember looking at the time of the Supreme Court judgment at the figures on trust in the judiciary, and it was up, I think, near 80% or something. There are obviously challenges to our institutions. Uh, there's the challenge of a sort of thinly disguised ambition among some around the Prime Minister to politicise the civil service. Uh, there's the horrible way in which individual civil servants were singled out and named by politicians that I thought was shameful. Uh, there is the fact that, you know, at least, and I say at least because I think it's more, but just to be polite, let's say at least three of the parties in this election are running on what you could call populist platforms. So we have a prime minister running on a platform of the people versus the parliament that failed them. You have a Labour Party running on the platform of us versus the establishment that rips you off. And you have Nigel Farage. Uh, and, you know... That is a danger to our institutions in the sense that, you know, this sort of populism isn't all that healthy. But I still, I'm still one of those people that thinks we're in the middle of what is a political rather than a constitutional crisis as yet. And I think this gets resolved when we get a majority government. Very interesting you say that about uh, a majority government and what it could do. Because one of the other questions that was more fundamental was whether Britain's concept of liberal democracy could survive either Labour or Conservatives winning an overall majority in the next election. Sounds like you think it could actually be a step in the right direction. But Paul, if you have a majority, when one thinks about, when you talk about the implausibility of some of the, of the promises on the uh, Labour side, but also the lack of clarity uh, on the Conservative side around the implications of some of about Brexit and other things. Um, there are many people in this country who are trying to vote for a hung parliament, even though the system makes it very difficult. Um, without putting you too much on the spot, um, do you, th or all of you actually, do you fundamentally think we would be in a better or worse place with another round of hung parliament, or whatever the outcome, we'd be better with a majority parliament? One thing that you know, a majority on either side would tell us, which I think we just don't know at the moment, is what actually are their priorities? Um, so, you know, I think you know, it, it is implausible that Labour could implement its manifesto in a parliament, it is not implausible that it could put us on a path towards implementing it over two or three parliaments and make big changes within one. Um, but we don't know how they would do it, what they would do first, what they would prioritise, or any of those things. So what the world would look like in five years' time under that world, we don't know. And equally, uh, we don't know what a Tory majority would do because their manifesto says so remarkably little. 
So, I mean, at, at least a majority would, um, would, would tell us what one side actually wanted, presumably, <laughs> um, and what its, uh, what its actual priorities were. Either, either one winning a majority would clearly, you know, if, if Labour won a majority, we'd be a very different country in five years' time to the country we would be if the Conservatives um, won a majority. But I think it also asks the question about what, what is then the impact on the next election. And going back to what Anand was saying, I mean, if the Conservatives win a majority by winning a bunch of these seats in the Midlands um, and the North, um, and the economy doesn't look too hot in five years' time because of a particularly hard Brexit or, or what have you, you can imagine that we swing one way this time and then swing very dramatically the other way next time. And the same may also be true of, 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 of Labour towards, um, towards Conservatives. So I suppose one of the risks, as it were, of majority on either side is you get lots of change, which we don't know which direction it will be in exactly, or where it will be this time, and then the next part of just undoes it all again because of this kind of uh, because of this polarisation in where uh, in where the parties are. So I think the you know the uh, going back to what Bromley was saying, our electoral system, and you know, in a sense the within party democracy, which I think is actually kind of you know driving this polarisation within yeah. the electoral system that we have. I mean, you could imagine bigger swings parliament to parliament if we get majorities at each, in each case, which itself could be, I suppose, destabilising. Although the system doesn't work very well without majority government and parliament, all kinds of conventions of, uh, about parliament don't work very well. I'm not sure that British people will feel that if we do have this swinging around, that they are very well represented by these majorities getting in alternately. And Brexit has proved a very you know, good case of that, of the narrow, losing minority, not feeling that their views are represented and possibly some of those who voted um, leave not feeling that Boris Johnson's version of leave represents them either. And I think going to your question, Stephanie, about you know, is our version of liberal democracy going to hold up? Um, I'm not sure without a change in the voting system that people are going to feel represented by this in the way that they would like to. And is that potentially accelerated by having, an, having another unclear result? I think it's happening anyway. I think both a majority that charges for something that much of the country doesn't want, or a hung parliament that just makes everyone feel oh, we can't stand any more of this, um, uh, can, can do it. But a hung parliament would at least force the question of whether a change in the voting system was necessary. Because it's, that is such a nice, clear ending, and we have run out of time, um, I will uh, leave it there. We have had clarity. We've had rigour. We have, even if you looked very carefully, had crumbs of optimism here and there. Whether, whether I come away with a reason to have a spring in my step as I approach the polling station in a little over a week's time, I'm not sure. Um, but thank you very much to the truth tellers, Paul Johnson, Bronwyn Maddox and Anna Menor. I'm going to have a quick word with Dan Hansen, who's our senior UK economist, who actually came to Bloomberg a few years ago from Her Majesty's Treasury, no less. Dan, we heard from the experts there a lot about the long-term impact on the economy of mm -hmm. various scenarios um, for Brexit and for the election. Um, but you've been thinking about sort of a more short-term outlook for the UK and how it could be affected by the election. What should we expect? 
Yeah, that's right. So it's no secret that elections in the UK have become increasingly hard to predict, and we only have to look back to 2017 to be reminded of that. Um, so w with that in mind, as you, as you just said, we've been thinking about scenarios, and we've been thinking about three in particular. Um, the first is that Boris Johnson gets the majority he's looking for. Which, most, which you'd, if you looked at the polls, you'd say that still that was the most likely. You'd look at the polls, you'd look at bookmakers' odds, they're putting about a 70% chance on it. And for the economy, we think that would mean a few things. We think there would be some modest pickup in business investment. Um, we don't think all of the investment that was lost over the past three years is going to come back. And one of the big questions for the first six months of any new Tory government will be, will they extend the transition period, the Brexit transition period? That question is going to come up in the summer um, at the end of June. Because there's this point about can you really do the whole trade deal in 12 months, which is what they're, in theory they're planning to do. Theoretically, yes, but uh, experience shows that, that that's highly, highly ambitious. Um, the, the other thing you've got to look out for for the economy and growth next year is fiscal policy. We know that fiscal policy is going to be loosened quite significantly. A big question here is, will the Tories be able to find all these investment projects, bring them online quickly, and will they provide a real return? I mean, there's, there's likely to be a demand boost because you put people in employment, you pay them wages, they spend the cash, but will they have a long-term benefit, these projects that are coming online? And the Bank of England is going to look at that. So if you have, a, you, have a, you have a conservative majority, you've still got uncertainty around Brexit. What does that mean for, for interest rates? So our, our view is that it means stay on hold. Over Which the they've been on hold for a while. They've been on hold for a while. Yeah. I mean, I think they've they've moved in a dovish direction. Um, that's pretty clear. But I think with the combination of some pickup, we're not talking about a big, big increase in business investment, but some pickup in business investment and a pretty big fiscal policy loosening on the horizon. Remember, the Bank of England looks over three years and they're mm. hit, trying to hit inflation in, in two year, hit the inflation target in two years' time. Um, those two things together, we think balance of probability, the next move will be up rather than down, but it, they're going to wait for that for that cyclical boost to come through. All right, and that's if you have a full majority, that what, as the bookmakers would, would predict now, which is a conservative majority under Prime Minister Boris Johnson. But the polls have narrowed a little bit, and as you said, uh, they've been wrong recently, particularly because Brexit kind of scrambles the numbers Absolutely. in various ways. Lots of people might be, even more than usual, might be voting tactically in some of these places where they want people who don't want to see Brexit. So quickly, what are the other outcomes? And is it, if you're stepping back, what is it? Is it going to make a real difference to the economy in the next 12 months? I think it will. I mean, the, the other outcome we've been looking at is if we have what we have now, where you have a Tory minority, they have the most seats in Parliament, but they can't form a government because no one else wants to support them. They don't have the support of the DUP, for example. But it's also the case that all the other parties can't form a government and certainly a stable government, a stable uh, what would be a coalition. Um, and in that world, we would expect the economy to perform pretty similarly to how it's done over the past 12 months, which is not very well. Kind of on hold, yeah. Yeah, it's, you'd, have a, you'd have a world, we think at least, where growth would stay around the 0.2% quarter-on-quarter mark. That's 0.8% annualised growth. And we think at least the trend rate of growth in the economy is about 0.4% or 1.6% annualised. So if the Bank of England's looking at that, the world. This is a world of entrenched uncertainty, and it's a scenario they have warned about. And why a couple of policymakers in November voted for a cut. Uh, if that begins to come to fruition, we think it's more likely than not that they'd actually loosen 
policy. And it's so funny because the, the things that add to the list of things to be uncertain about. Remember, we've got the Bank of England Governor Mark Carney, who many people will have got to know over the years. He was supposed to be stepping down. Well, he's supposed to have stepped down loads of times, and he's each time he's had to have an extension. He is supposed to be stepping down at the end of January. We don't know who's going to replace him because people were waiting. We're waiting for this. Um, election. Um, so that is another thing that we'll be uncertain about. I guess even if Labour against the odds were able to form a government, maybe they uh, don't win a majority, but are kind of ganged together with these other remaining parties, Remain parties, Lib Dems and the Scottish Nationalists, for example, um, that also means uncertainty um, because we don't know what's we even under that scenario you don't really know what's going to happen with Brexit or anything else. So it sort of feels like this is an election that was sold to people as you know getting Brexit done and resolving things. Under all three scenarios, this uncertainty affecting the economy continues, and you will have plenty still to do, Dan. Um, thank Busy you, indeed. thank you very much for that. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week talking about India and probably trying not to talk about the UK election. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also find me on at MyStephanomics. The debate featured in this episode was held at the Royal Institution in central London. It was co-hosted by the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the Institute for Government and the UK in a Changing Europe. The show was produced by Magnus Henriksen and edited by Scott Lamman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Special thanks to Dan Hansen, Paul Johnson, Bronwyn Maddox, Anna Menon, Greg Opie and Bonnie Brimstone. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.